Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Now, for regular listeners, we tackled a weighty subject last week with Akira Kurosawa. And this week, we're going to take it a little bit easier with something that's a bit more of a populist choice, Woody Allen, uh, which for, has no controversy at all. Well, first, you know, I'm a huge fan of Woody Allen, more so his personal life than his films, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, first of all, before we get into this, uh, Justin requested that I apologize for my behavior last week, specifically the fact that I kept prefacing every remark i made by saying this is a cliche or this is a banal statement or this is a dumb thing to say or some variation of that i apologize and you will never do it again no i'll probably do it again (laughs) so we're talking about woody allen and we have to is it like legal that people have to do the you have to separate the art from the artist Ah, boring (laughs) that is so banal isn't it i always dread whenever one of these cases pops up you know just the the barrage of think pieces that inevitably emerges it's like people have these have these ready-made like they, they have them in their drafts folder and it's just like mad libs so we're just not really going to talk about that well actually i actually do think we should talk about it a little bit because woody allen uh, more so than most artists is harder to separate from his work uh, did the did the uh unpleasantness impact how you view his work at all um, well, the ones where he specifically deals with those kind of things, kind of in Manhattan or any of the other films where he has a much younger um, love interest, that it's impossible not to watch those films and have it reflected back in your face. Uh-huh. Do you think people out there would be like, wait, what, what, what did Woody Allen do? I'm completely they, ignorant. They know what he did uh, and what he is alleged to have done. Yeah. Um, I would say that... Obviously, there was the the whole controversy that happened in the early 90s when mm-hmm. I was like three years old, so I wasn't aware of it. And then there was the the franchise reboot of that uh, two or three years ago Yeah, when Dylan Farrow actually came forward with the allegations herself. Uh, I think that all happened to coincide with the period when I think I was kind of growing out of Woody Allen anyway, mm-hmm. so it didn't make that huge of a difference for me. I, I would say, though, that... Um, the, these things, even though like Annie Hall is good no matter what, and like that's just like basic ethics 101, like that you can separate the artist from the art. Uh, what about something like Manhattan? Well, I think that what this, what the unpleasantness has done is kind of underline certain has shown a darker side to the work that was always there. So there's, there's all we don't use the word unpleasant, uh, lightly. (laughs) Yes. I just don't know what else to say. Yes. There's always been uh, a philosophy in Woody Allen's work that I think has only increased since 1992, become more pronounced, which is, I think I would sum it up as, uh, there's no God and the world is meaningless. Existence is meaningless. So, Uh, to deal with this horrible burden that we call life we need to find whatever happiness we can and whatever works you know to quote the title of uh, one of his great films uh i'm not even gonna say anything i'll just let that (laughs) hang there and so people can interpret it i mean people who have seen the film whatever works starring lavery david know that it's a piece of shit but the philosophy is i think manifests itself in some interesting ways in some a movie like crimes and misdemeanors where Mm -hmm. martin landau literally kills a person and gets away with it because there's no god and he forces you to confront that. That is such There's, a fascinating film to yeah. approach within the context of Woody Allen's own life. The downside to it, though, is all of these movies that he's made since 1992 of kind of 
horrible older men <laughs> justifying their irresponsible love lives. Mm-hmm. So, did you see Magic in the Moonlight? I did not see Magic in the Moonlight. Okay. The last Woody Allen film that I saw of his new ones was Irrational Man. Okay, Magic in the Moonlight, I'm going to spoil the ending of it, because if you haven't seen it by now, like, who gives a shit? Uh, the only people who have seen it <laughs> are the ones that are, are either older people who stumbled on the movie accidentally, or, or people that, like, do their due diligence and have to see the year's Woody yes, Allen movie. Woody Allen lifers like myself. Uh, so in that movie, Colin Firth is kind of a middle-aged uh, guy. He's got an age-appropriate fiancé, and he falls in love with Emma Stone as this younger... Uh, well, this this ingenue. One of the last scenes of the movie, the penultimate scene, Colin Farrell is getting a drink with one of his friends, and he says, "Oh, I cut things off with my fiance uh, because I'm in love with Emma Stone." And he's like, "Oh, how did she take it?" And he's like, "Oh, she took it fine. She said we might as well deal with it now than later." And I thought that is such a ridiculous fantasy scenario for Woody, right? That kind of reflects to the ending of Annie Hall, where Woody Allen writes his version of Annie Hall, where they just get together at the end. It's like the most fantastical happy ending that there could be for that movie. Yeah, but it's like without any self-consciousness this time. Now it's now it's him just... Do you think uh, he's reached that plateau, though, where he's just old now? Like, there's a certain place where, like, filmmakers... You know, everybody ages and their mind is kind of going and they're in the mechanics of what they're doing without trying to be like fresh. Because if you look at Annie Hall, because this we watched two movies uh, for this podcast, Annie Hall and anything else. Now, why do we watch the Jason Biggs, Christina Ricci, Ricci classic that uh, Quentin Tarantino calls one of his favorite films ever, if I recall? <laughs> yeah. um, he's wrong. He's completely wrong. Is that it's basically a remake of Annie Hall. But we'll get into that a little bit er, yeah. later. Annie Hall itself, it feels fresh and it feels kind of like in the moment. Mm. While his other movies later on in his career, especially from 2000 onward, feel kind of lazy like an old man not really knowing what he's doing whenever i see woody allen interviewed he always gives the impression of being someone who is just making movies to keep keep himself from splitting his wrists uh, (laughs) or slitting his wrists do you believe that he's a filmmaker that is not making movies just for himself that he still wants to garner an audience because for people that don't know while annie hall won best picture and his films are known as classics they don't really make money he claims not to care and at this point i'm inclined to believe him i mean i think i think he has a certain amount of vanity like all filmmakers who cast themselves in 30 movies do uh but i think if he actually did really care about his audience he would make better films or because <laughs> even for the last few years he's been kind of just cracking that drawer open pulling out an old script and just filming it without seemingly changing a word whatever works yeah there, there well that actually was an old script from the 70s that was written for zero mostel that he just dusted off <laughs> and oh boy yeah terrible uh <laughs> I, I would say the the problem with Woody Allen's work since 1992, I, which is the year that it all went down, not only has his work become less um, interesting, less interesting, and it kind of I, I think the morale less morally searching. Mm-hmm. I think the movies before that uh, asked more interesting moral questions, and the movies since have been more about self justification, which I don't think is a coincidence. Uh, I also think ever since, like a lot of old men who don't leave their apartment anymore, they really show a very kind of hermetic worldview. Uh, And yeah, I I generally don't think he's engaged with the culture or with the world. And every once in a while, he'll make a movie like Midnight in Paris that just accidentally happens to catch the zeitgeist. Midnight in Paris 
kind of does that because it's applying it to old timey things and because people like that yeah that's why they respond to it i think people have always uh, the woody allen movies have been very successful with a mass audience movies like manhattan annie hall midnight in paris hannah and her sisters those are the ones that kind of a white upper middle class audience enjoys projecting themselves onto mm-hmm. i mean annie hall uh, it's not just that in Annie Hall, we like to project ourselves onto that relationship and identify with the relationship and think of ways that it's um, been similar to our own relationships, but it's the lifestyle that that movie shows, this kind of affluent urban culture. But that's a lifestyle that I could ne- I've never lived that lifestyle. I haven't lived it, but it's like one that I think uh, his audience aspires to and one that his audience who tend to be urban, affluent, um, at least aspiring to middle class or creative class. It's one that they can live a version of, you know, going to movies or that sort of thing. Because like Woody Allen in his earlier, funnier films, take bananas, take the money and run. He's playing a poor schlub. Yes. And as the movies kind of go on, his apartment uh, studios get bigger and bigger to the <laughs> point that you're like, wow. I believe that it's in Play It Against Sam that he lives in like a giant loft. Pauline Kale pointed that out in an interview that she did. She was like, Woody Allen's character writes for Film Quarterly. I wrote for Film Quarterly. I made 50 bucks an article. For people that don't know about Woody Allen, that he started writing jokes very early in his career and he had success very early. So he never really had to struggle when he started making means for himself. Yeah, by the time he was 20, he was writing for like your show of shows or, mm-hmm. or writing for other comedians. Uh, so he went the Judd Apatow route very fast. Yeah, and that's what I love about Anything Else, which is a movie that uh, I, I just watched last night for the first time since its theatrical release in 2003. Wait, did you see it in theaters? Oh, yes. Oh. I, I have seen them all since Curse of the Jade Scorpion in a theater. So I hopped on at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was your face when you were leaving Curse of the Jade Scorpion? Uh, disappointment, I think. Like, I kind of got into Woody Allen when I was 12 or 13 because... His movies are, when you're at that age, they seem very grown up uh, and they tackle big weighty themes, but they're also quite accessible. So they're they're easy for an, for a somewhat precocious 12 or 13 year old to grasp onto. I'm going to say what I said last time with Akira Kurosawa, that I really didn't really start watching Woody Allen films until I was probably 18, 19. Mm-hmm. I had a very sheltered life. Thanks, mom. <laughs> and uh, so it came to me much later. I'm really curious to see how I would have reacted to them when I was 12. When you watch something like Annie Hall, though, there's so much visual invention and wordplay that it's very easy to uh, fall into and enjoy. It made me think of something like Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. uh, something where it's just like this this young or at least youngish or early in his career talent who is really excited by the possibilities of the medium. I mean, like Citizen Kane, uh, Annie Hall's a movie that just has so many tricks up its sleeve yeah whether it's the uh the out of chronology storytelling or there's even an animated sequence in it as a filmmaker these are the kinds of films that would make me want to go like i want to do these things because they're like a shot of energy into the audience and if you're creative in any way that's the kind of stuff that you want to basically copy which brings me to anything else (laughs) which we're going to go in and out because they're so closely linked and that anything else is like a shitty lazy copy of annie hall so both films if you haven't seen Annie Hall and I'm sure you have I mean like come on (laughs) like what am I even saying but uh uh, both films about the uh the rise and fall of a relationship between a couple of young hipsters Mm -hmm. um and Annie Hall is about two uh flawed characters you know just trying to make a connection and making it work and 
anything else is about this nice guy and this shrewish horrible nice guy? cuckolding i think he i think woody thinks he's a nice guy yeah this this shrewish cuckolding woman who makes this nice guy's life a horrible slog so if we're going to compare diane keaton to christina ricci christina ricci is a terrible terrible person there is nothing redeeming in the movie i assume you mo- mean <laughs> Yes. Well, I've met her personally. And... Yeah, in the movie, there is nothing redeeming. It's almost like a nihilistic take on Annie Hall. Yeah, I mean, it would be if it were actually a nihilistic take on Annie Hall that had the courage of its convictions, and it was just like a pitch black comedy. Like about... at the end, Jason Biggs kills Christina. Yeah, Ricci. then I would be like, oh wow, you know, like th- this is trying to do something. Instead, yeah, it's just more like the weak sauce version of Annie Hall, and uh, you know. Annie Hall uh, had benefited from the chemistry of Woody Allen and Diane Keaton, which I, I think it's safe to say was a real chemistry. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm telling tales out of school with that. Uh, whereas anything else, like a lot of Woody Allen's late period work, it feels like he got these two young 20-somethings to just... Like he saw them on an ad for something like American Pie, which seems like the way he casts a lot of his movies. And he's like, oh, these guys seems to be hip. I'll get that guy. Well, you know, the the story is that he just his casting director, basically, who's been with him since the beginning of his career, picks these actors out, uh, whoever's kind of a, a young, fashionable actor. And Woody Allen barely meets with them before the movie. They summon him to Woody Allen's office and he says, hello, I hope you can do the pot. And then they're out in 30 seconds. Uh, so Jason Biggs seems like a case of, yeah, she, she cast him because he was an American pie and they started filming. It was like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Well, I think Jason Biggs is an asshole in this movie. Like, I don't like him at all. I agree, but I don't think that's the way we're supposed to interpret him. I mean, I think Annie Hall, Annie Hall, even though some people would say it's a solipsistic movie, I think his character, Woody's character in that movie, Alvy Singer does things that are objectively assholeish, and we're yeah. meant to interpret them as assholeish. Yeah, that's you know the artist's intent here, where yeah. it's obvious that Alan knows that what um, Alvy is doing is wrong most of the time. Like any of the times that he has a conflict with Annie in the movie, we're on Annie's side. Yes. While in anything else, I guess we're supposed to be on Jason Big's side, just because the characters around him are so shrewish and they're always taking him down. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's Christina Ricci. It's her horrible uh, mother, played by Stockard Channing. There's um, oh, there's also uh, Woody Allen himself in it as Woody Allen. <laughs> has he ever been less charming in that role? This is the one thing that I think the movie does that's half interesting, which is that. Uh, so Jason Biggs plays a, and I quote, 21-year-old divorced comedy writer <laughs> who's has a mentor, David Dobell, played by Woody Allen, who is uh, in his 60s, also uh, a struggling comedy writer. And they have a very paternalistic relationship. But then slowly as the movie goes on, you realize that David Dobell is an insane man and he, he becomes obsessed with anti-Semitism. He th- Which is a theme in uh, Annie Hall. Annie Hall, yeah. They, there's a conversation that the two movies have that's almost exactly the same where the, where the Woody Allen characters in both movies says, did you hear that guy? He said Jew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in anything else, it actually leads to like murder, at least to violent confrontations. Uh, anything else has maybe the best scene in a bad Woody Allen movie, which is uh, Woody Allen be- uh, smashing a bully's car with a crowbar. Mm-hmm. But so the one s- semi-interesting thing the movie does is 
kind of pull the rug out from under you with the Woody Allen character. Yeah, because when you approach these films, you assume that Woody Allen will be, you know, self-aware and he does some bad things. And but he's still charming. And he he'll be, since he's the mentor, he'll be like the moral compass throughout the movie. That's right. And that does not happen in this film. Yeah. If anything, Danny DeVito is the moral compass. As as his Broadway Danny Rose agent. <laughs> so, so in this movie, guys, I just want to make it clear. Uh, Jason Biggs is a 21-year-old divorced comedy writer, okay? He writes uh, jokes for other comedians' nightclub acts. Okay, <laughs> nightclub acts. This is 2003. So the thing, the thing about, and he's got this this huckster agent uh, <laughs> played by Danny DeVito, who he's apparently his only client. Uh, like I don't know what do you even say. Like Woody Allen. The thing is, this is actually what Woody Allen's life was. He was a 21-year-old divorced comedy writer who was very successful and lived in the Upper East Side. There's a scene in this movie where uh, Jason Biggs is with his ex-girlfriend in Greenwich Village, and they're walking around. He's like, I don't know. I like to visit the village, but I like to go home to the Upper East Side. Mm. And it's like Woody Allen is still under the impression that the village is this uh, bohemian place where artists go. It could be charming, these anachronistic little touches, but it just feels wrong. Well, the problem is he actually wants to reflect. It's not like Wes Anderson, where he's creating this, this fantasy world. Yeah. Like he actually wants to reflect the way, the way we live now. And Annie Hall I mean, any of the conversations they have in anything else could have been from a lost draft of Annie Hall, all the cultural references. But like a shitty draft. And we should specify for people that haven't seen anything else, and we don't want you to go watch anything else, (laughs) that imagine Annie Hall with all the charm and the style (laughs) taken out of it was the only thing left, the characters turning and talking into camera. Yeah. And that's it. Other than that, it's just, you know, a run-of-the-mill Woody Allen shot picture. But what I mean by the dialogue being taken from Annie Hall is it's the same cultural references. So Annie Hall has the famous scene where they're in line at the movie theater and the guy's talking about Fellini. And, but in anything else, they talk about Humphrey Bogart or uh, Dostoevsky. Oh, don't they go see a Bergman film at one point? He- do they? I they go to a movie theater and they see an old movie. Yeah, it's like, it's so... And I'm not saying that young people don't ever talk about these things, but it's not... There's nothing or, modern in it. Or like their first date, they they go to a record store and are looking for Billie Holiday records. I mean, it, it just doesn't ring true. <laughs> so, Especially not when it's fucking Jason Biggs. The reality <laughs> of the situation does nothing for you. No. Okay, what about Annie Hall? Do you think that reflects more of the time that Woody Allen made that movie? At what point was he like, I'm locking the doors, living in my apartment the same way I've always lived, and that's it? Maybe shortly after. I mean, I feel like Annie Hall was probably always in a somewhat idealized version of a certain kind of New York life. But it at least, I don't know, at least felt semi-authentic. I, I think that, uh, I, I don't I don't quite know when he locked the doors, because one of his most fertile periods was in the 80s when he was making Hannah and Her Sisters, Crimes and Misdemeanors. And those movies all all feel authentic in a way that reflects the kind of Upper East Side uh, rich person experience of those times. Well, I feel that there, Woody Allen always goes through weird periods where he starts to experiment and tries to do things that are out of his box. For a filmmaker who's so easily associated with a certain type of film, he's a guy who will go out and make a 
Shadow and Fog, which is a uh, homage to German expressionist films. Sure. Um, or even when he went to Europe, uh, that very brief fertile period where he made Match Point uh-huh. and um, all the other Vicky, Christina, Barcelona, yeah. and, and the like. Yeah, uh, I, I think that had more to do with just that's where the financing was. But it kind of reinvigorated his films in a way that they hadn't been for a long time. Like those 90s were a rough stretch for Woody Allen. I think Deconstructing Harry is pretty good. That's true. But yeah. that's an, uh, a lot of ideas from old scripts are in there, including some that were in Annie Hall. Because for people that don't know, geez, we got to trot out that old cliche. I didn't say it. <laughs> Annie Hall has the famous story that the movie that won Best Picture is not the movie that Woody Allen wanted to make. It's only a sliver of the film that Allen originally wrote. Right. Annie Hall's about 90 minutes and the rough cut was over two hours and it was called Anadonia, which means the inability to experience pleasure. And it was, and it was supposed to be a journey through Woody Allen's mind where I think one draft of the script, I don't know if they filmed it, but one draft of the script, there was a murder mystery. Yeah. It, it, supposedly they did film it when they, uh, Diane Keaton and Woody Allen step out of seeing the sorrow and the pity. They were, that was supposed to lead into the murder, murder mystery element, which was later supposedly readapted as Manhattan murder mystery. Sure. Another Diane Keaton, Woody Allen team up film that was supposed to kind of reinvigorate his career out of that whole scandal that happened. Yeah. Uh, their last film together to date, I think. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And of course, there was also in Annie Hall supposed to be a scene where he goes to hell and talks to the devil, which later found itself in Deconstructing Harry. And, you know, when you say this kind of stuff, it sounds super insane. But watching Annie Hall, I don't think those sequences would have felt that much out of place, considering what happens. Like where they go through uh, Woody Allen's past and they're kind of commenting on the tableau that they're seeing, or all the split screens are talking to each other. And it's stuff still like a very that. digressive movie, but... The editor, Ralph Rosenbaum, yeah. uh, kind of narrowed it down and, and made it centered it around the love story. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with anything else is that he does not have an editor that is telling him no. I'm not quite sure what happened with the editor situation, because after Annie Hall and after he parted ways with Ralph Rosenbaum, the movies from the 80s that he made were generally pretty tight, like they were 90 minutes or so. I don't know if he had a strong editor at that time. Uh, a lot of the movies he's made since have been like reasonably tight. Anything else uh, runs punishingly long, like close to two hours. An and- hour and 48 minutes. Oh, it's just, it's just uh, such and a And the slog. editor of uh, Anything Else, Elisa um, Lepselter, okay. actually went on to edit all of his other films since then. And she's still his editor. Hey, okay. Uh, whatever works. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. But maybe it's that kind of new blood that you know, you need. Uh, I don't remember her name, but he had another editor, too, that worked on Louie a lot. Now, I want to get back to Jason Biggs mm-hmm. uh, because he's really bad. And... He is really bad. I think uh, it's it's well known that Woody Allen sort of takes pride in the fact that he doesn't direct his actors very much. He sort of lets them go and he doesn't like to be asked a lot of questions, which I think is not the sign of a good director. No, it's not. I know I know that he his his partisans make make the case that, uh, oh, he gives them all the freedom to act. But but at the same time, he's very he's famous for firing an actor halfway through shoot and replacing them with someone else and then reshooting that entire part. He did that with an entire movie. I believe it was September right. that he shot the entire film. Then he's like, this doesn't work. And, and then he Purple Rose him. of Cairo was supposed to star Michael Keaton and he was fired after a week and replaced by Jeff Daniels. And his new one, 
who did he fire from that? Bruce Willis. <laughs> yeah, the man himself. Which I was really sad. I was really excited for Bruce Willis. You think he would have been Woody bring that movie. Bruno magic to the screen? I thought he would have been. It could have. Uh, it could have been like when Andrew Dice Clay was in Blue Jasmine. It could have been that level. But Andrew Dice Clay was good in Blue Jasmine. I know. That's yeah. what I was hoping for. But nope. That doesn't. How does Andrew Dice Clay get cast in a Woody Allen film? I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, what is the story? I don't, I don't know. I would love to know the story. But back to Jason Biggs. Yeah. He's terrible. So I think the downside to Woody Allen not directing any of his actors is just that you get these really weird, stilted performances. Jason Biggs, I mean... He's not even really <laughs> trying to do an Allen imitation, is he? Because a lot of actors, when they come to a Woody Allen film... Often they will take his mannerisms and his voice. Uh, most famously, Kenneth Bragna. Uh, am I saying that name? Kenneth Branagh. Uh, director of Thor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, in the movie Celebrity, does such an on-point Woody Allen imitation that it's really unnerving. It's amazing, yeah. You're like, why, why isn't Woody Allen in this movie? Or I mean, like John Cusack did it. And um, you said that Will Ferrell does a good one in Melinda and Melinda. Well, I mean, that's a controversial opinion. What I like about Will Ferrell doing the Woody Allen is it almost feels like a parody of the Woody Allen character. Like a Saturday Night Live Yeah, it's so absurd seeing him do it that it's kind of funny. I think Owen Wilson is the one who does it best, though, because he brings brings an optimistic... uh, He brings his own way of delivering delivering lines to it, this optimistic tone that that uh, makes the character more likable. Yeah, as opposed to being kind of whiny and petulant. Yeah, I, I also quite liked Joaquin Phoenix in Irrational Man. Oh, I thought Joaquin Phoenix was really good in Irrational Man. It's a shame that he was stuck in that movie. I know, but I, I liked that in so many of Woody Allen's recent movies, the actors are stilted and they sound like they're reciting dialogue from memory. And the fact that he brought this weird method mumbly thing to it gave it an energy that isn't in most of his movies. Uh, I think... For me, the worst of the Woody Allen clones, sadly, was Larry David, because even though we all love Larry David, uh, he has a natural sourness that combined with the sourness of Woody <laughs> Allen's dialogue. So instead of two negatives making a positive, it just it should, resulted in like acid. Yeah, it's very un- it was a very unpleasant experience. And I think Jason Biggs, um, it's kind of like if you went to see a community theater version of Play It Again, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> he is so stiff and kind of. Like, did Jason Biggs never had any charm, did he? I think he was fine in American Pie. I guess. Uh, maybe it's been a long everyman, time since I've seen it. As the everyman, but like in, he is grating in anything else where you're like, oh, I hate you so much. He just has this blankness and it almost feels like Woody Allen ramped up Christina Ricci's unlikability <laughs> just to try to sympathize Jason Biggs. And when Jason Biggs and Woody Allen have scenes together, it's... I, 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 mean, I mean, it's like they don't even deserve to be in the same shot together. It's like the master and his worst apprentice. <laughs> Which was actually the alternative title for anything else. And I also love it. Like J- Jason Biggs, when he's reciting, whenever he says anything in the movie, you're like, oh, I could imagine Woody Allen saying that. Like it's 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 like Woody Allen's dialogue is like David Mamet's dialogue or Quentin Tarantino's dialogue where there's a rhythm to it and it takes a particular kind of actor to sell it. And when Jason Biggs says something like, I'm writing a book on existential philosophy and, and the bleakness of humanity. It's it like, sounds no, so hollow like, and no, like you're empty. Not. Yeah. <laughs> like he's reading off cue cards right off camera. Yeah. And he doesn't really, kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio and Romeo and Juliet, he doesn't really understand what he's saying, but he's just saying it because that's what he has to do. Yeah, it's like phonetic, you know? 
It's like he's like Sukiyaki Western Django, where yeah. the actors don't know they're speaking English. It's exactly like that. Yeah. What about Christina Ricci? Does she bring some of that Diane Keaton uh, charm? I think that she's also bad, but not as bad as Jason Biggs. I think she's like any um, ingenue who's been in a Woody Allen movie lately, where like she's working with unworkable material. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there is. I said it before, but. She gets no sympathetic moment in the movie and no moment where she gets to seem like a real person. Yeah, the 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 biggest conflict in the movie is the fact that she won't have sex with Jason Biggs. Yes. Which, you know, right there is iffy territory for for a movie, especially a movie by noted pervert Woody Allen. <laughs> and uh, throughout the movie, she has a couple of affairs with people. And when Jason Biggs finds out about it, they have these fights that are like no fight that would ever be in a real relationship. It's just awful. Yeah. What about, let's let's go back to Annie Hall before Will Sloan's head explodes trying to explain the... Well, it's like, like if I explain this, it's like I'm trying to explain normal human behavior. (laughs) I don't know where to even begin because this movie has no conception of normal human behavior. But what about the lessons in Annie Hall? What do you think made it feel so fresh to audiences at the time? Like it won Best Picture, which is a little bit startling when you look back on it. I mean, movies like that never won Best best Picture, a modest comedy. Mm -hmm. And it was, of course, up against Star Wars, which is not as good a movie as Annie Hall. No, Annie Hall is a much better film than Star Wars. So let's just put that to rest right now. I think anybody can identify with Annie Hall. One of the most brilliant scenes in Annie Hall is that scene with the lobsters. Just just this flashback to this memory. And that's and that's what people remember of relationships, right? They they don't I don't remember eating seven lobsters. They don't remember that particular anecdote, but what they remember are like the dumb times or just the little throwaway moments. And then later in the movie they revisit that scene with Woody Allen trying to recapture that moment with somebody else and it falls flat. Like that's, that's so weird because it's as if he knew what was iconic about and making Annie Hall. Yeah. So he like goes back to it. The, the movie knows how people remember relationships and it knows why relationships fail. Mm-hmm. It's a very astute movie. And it's not, uh, you know, romantic comedies when they have those kind of endings where the couple don't get together. It's not a sad movie either. Yeah. It, they both end up fine with it at the end. And it's amazing that Annie Hall is remembered as being such a romantic movie and is on any list of the best romantic comedies, given that it's about a failed relationship. And, you know, the romance in it is very endearing. But I would say something like Manhattan has more of that kind of romantic passion, while Annie Hall, for all its crazy stylistic quirks, feels a little bit more realistic in the way that people come together. They fight, they break up and then get back together again. Yeah, Manhattan definitely gives the impression of being a movie where he was like trying to make the grand statement on something or other so if we're talking about woody allen what is the thing that keeps you coming back to his work uh inertia i would say (laughs) like no honestly i I feel like i'm honestly i've seen all of his movies except september when i first met you you said that i'm like why haven't you just watched september it's not like I'm actually consciously avoiding it. In fact, I actually thought... Like, should this podcast end and we go watch September? Maybe it should, because, like, I was actually thinking before this podcast, maybe I should just go see September so that I could have said that I've seen them all, but I just never got around to it. Uh, you know, and this and this has been a process of, like, the last 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like I, I sat down and meant to watch all of these. I think that I've got all that I'm going to get out of Woody Allen at this point. I think he has several ideas that have been spread pretty thin across 50 movies. So you don't think like his next movie is going to be revealed to be like an action comedy? No. Like Bruce Willis is like taking back his John McClane role? and No, I think it will be about a uh, May-December romance between a self-styled intellectual and a uh, and his, his Pygmalion sort of relationship with... 
uh, a young girl. It'll probably be like a Nick Nolte will be the guy and Selena Gomez will be the girl. <laughs> Nick Nolte is not acting in any movies. Or, yeah, Have no, you seen Nick Nolte lately? <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of like who is some old veteran or maybe it would be like... Chris Christopherson. Or Richard Gere. It, it'll be Richard Gere will be the guy and um, Amber Tamblin will be the girl. And... <laughs> You know, uh, and, and, oh, and there will be a murder at some point, and it'll be like, oh, well, uh, uh, how can we live with ourselves having murdered somebody? And there will be a magician. That's what the movie will be. <laughs> You've already written it. A yeah. real scoop. Oh, and it'll be set in Norway, and it'll there will be lots of beautiful scenes of Norway, and it'll end with uh, the phone number of the Norway Tourism Board. Wait, does that happen in one of the Woody Allen movies? Well, at the end of To Rome With Love, have you seen that? That's his film set in Italy, where it's it's a portmanteau film, four stories set in Italy. It begins with the traffic cop in Italy saying, I see all of the stories in Italy, and here are but a four. And it ends with the traffic cop sticking his head out the window. He says, you will see all of these sites and others when you visit. <laughs> it's, it's like, no number comes up. It's like, well, no number comes up. It's like, wow, this actually ended with a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm always clutching to the hope that Woody Allen will like experiment and try to do something else, but he's old. So yes. that's probably not going to happen. And he's, he's become very uh, stubborn in his ways. Every once in a while, he makes a movie that I like. Yeah. I think Midnight in Paris is a likable film. You're not one of those contrarians that are like, it's not as good as everybody thinks it is. Uh, I you remember when I was, agree that it's not as good as everybody thinks like, it's, it, it was <laughs> in like people are like it should win best picture that year I don't th- I would give it three stars out of four maybe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's a, a likable little trifle I think I thought Vicky Cristina Barcelona was the same I thought Irrational Man was not a great film but watchable yeah watchable the very good looking um, Woody Allen hires really great cinematographers yes like Vilmo Sigmund mm. or uh, uh Zhao Fei or all sorts of people, Carlo De Palma or who is the Gordon Willis shot Annie Hall. Who, Annie shot Manhattan as well. Annie and she was famous for shooting The Godfather and being the Prince of Darkness. Who is of course considered kind of unusual that a dramatic director like that would shoot a comedy. And you know, if you want to revisit Woody Allen's films, I would say just go for the weird ones because that kind of visual flair is something people don't associate with Woody Allen at all. But it's there. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at Annie Hall, maybe not so much anything else, <laughs> which is shot by Darius Kunji, the guy who did a lot of David Fincher films. Yeah, uh, and I think he's been kind of shooting Woody Allen's films since then. Uh, Vilmos Sigmund has shot a few. There have been a couple of different cinematographers, but all of his movies since then, with the exception of the ones in London, all of the movies sort of look the same. Yeah, they have. They're very uh, sun-kissed and and, uh, self-consciously beautiful looking. I think maybe to their fault a little bit because it makes them look even more hermetically sealed than they used to. Like Annie Hall actually looks like it was shot in New York. Yeah, well, these ones look like they're very tableaus. They're picture postcards. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the ones in London, though, look sort of dark and gray. And but rainy. that was his reinvention where people yeah. kind of... they. I, it feels like before Matchpoint came out, everyone had kind of put Woody Allen to the side. And they're like, he's going to keep making a movie a year because that's what he does. But we don't, you know, they're not going to be good anymore. Yeah. And he's kind of reached that point again where people are like... Well, you know, with Woody Allen, it's a cyclical thing. And in a year or two, we'll come out with, with one that's okay. And then it'll be like, Woody's back. <laughs> and then the year after, it'll be like, what what happened to Woody Allen? It's like, we've lived through this over and over again. Until the day that he dies? Yes, which shouldn't be for another 30 years or so. Wait, isn't he like 80 years old? Yeah, he'll that guy will outlive us all. <laughs> well, you know, if anything does happen to Woody Allen... 
uh, at least we still have today's modern day Woody Allen, Kevin Smith. Oh God! <laughs> we're we're actually recording this the day after Yoga Hosers uh, debuted at Sundance, and I I and Justin I think have both been like reading all the reviews we can find about Yoga Hosers because it really looks like like the worst movie ever made. I want to say. Well, do you think Woody Allen could have survived in that kind of internet environment? Like if he came up now making the movies that he's making. I don't know. Like, I, I don't think so. I mean, Woody Allen is just such a specific fluke case where early in his career, he got with the right studio, got with the right producers, uh, had the right amount of success at the right time and has been able to have it his way ever since. And then, well, have it his way ever since, other than that horrible thing that happened. Uh, have it his way career-wise. <laughs> yeah, career-wise, not personality-wise. Um, so if you had to give one recommendation for Woody Allen film before we go, which one would you do? Oh, Annie Hall, sure. Annie, <laughs> but, but, Annie Hall. But uh, yeah, if you want something off the, a little more uh, off the beaten path, uh, Purple Rose of Cairo is a great film. Uh, a lot of people consider that his best. Yeah, I think it's up there for sure. And if you want something more obscure, I don't know, Love and Death. That's not obscure at all, but it's but it's great. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Everyone Says I Love You. Oh yeah, I kind of like that. <laughs> that. That's a weird one. Uh, yeah. Woody Allen musical, which includes some wire work. <laughs> you know what I like about that movie is that half the cast actually can't sing. But that's the whole point. And, of yeah, that. and so they you... make no effort to hide it. Like Woody Allen himself sings. <laughs> oh, can I tell you that before the most recent unpleasantness happened, I saw Woody Allen play clarinet in New York. I went to see him at the Carlisle Hotel, and I'm telling this story because I paid $90 for it, plus a $40 drink tab. $40? How many drinks did you have? Well, you had I had to pay at least $40, but that ended up being like two drinks at the Carlisle because it's an expensive place. It was an absurd waste of money, but the thing is, if you're living in New York for a year, every now and then you have to do one of those New York things. And that's one of those New York things? Yes. Yeah, so it was me and a bunch of rich, elderly European tourists watching Woody Allen and his jazz band play New Orleans Dixieland jazz. I don't think there's anything sadder than that. And I will tell you that uh, Woody Allen looked at the audience exactly twice. He uh, came on stage with his head down, and then he put his head up and he gave an extremely brief half second wave. And then for the rest of the show, he sort of looked down and played his clarinet. And as they were packing up, Woody Allen and another guy while they're packing up sang a song. And then as he was on his way off the stage, he looked up and waved again and then was off. And on that note, it sounds like Woody Allen is already dead. (laughs) My name is Justin the Clue. My name is Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Woody Allen. (laughs) Thank you for recording oh a God. podcast about me. Woody Allen, you're on the podcast. I just got the plane in from New York. I heard you were doing a podcast. So I was reading on Wikipedia that it says that your personality is not like your movie. Are you like a Jerry Lewis type where you're like, hello? Uh, uh, no. I mean, if you if you see me, I'm actually, you know, you know, very normal. I, I, uh, you know, the people, the women in my life actually think I'm very sexy. <laughs> Don't you love it when Woody Allen says that? You know, you're very sexy. I think it's the way on your face. Too. You're like burying your teeth like a horse and you're like, Argh. That's how he pronounces it, though. Put all this at the end of the podcast.